Um, hey everybody, we're, I'm here with Brian. Um, we're doing our first of our um, uh, Your Amigos Goes to Hollywood um, podcasts. Uh, we're here with Amar Kishan. Amar, welcome. Um, uh, you're from California and in Los Angeles, which is why uh, it, it works. And actually, we're doing this in a room together for the first time. I think it's the first time we've ever done yeah, a podcast with everybody all together, in the same room. which is amazing. I mean, it's probably going to go wrong. On this <laughs> this won't be the first recording. <laughs> this, this won't be the one you hear because I'll probably mess up saving it or something. Amar, would you like to describe a little bit about your recent JCO publication? And maybe introduce yourself first. That'd be magic. Sure. Well, my name is Amir Kissen. I'm a radiation oncologist at UCLA. I primarily focus on treating uh, prostate cancer. Uh, it's a true honor to be here, and especially the first uh, format of this podcast, so that, that's great. Um, and the first of our tour. This yes. is our tour. Yeah, this is our LA tour. Welcome to Hollywood. It's been <laughs> terrific so far. I went yeah. swimming this morning. It was uh, absolutely beautiful. And I, I was really interested in your paper, or we were interested in your paper for lots of different reasons, but I'm really confused about radi- about the role of ADT sure. and radiation therapy. I don't know if you should give it before radiation therapy. I don't know if you should give it after. I don't know how much radiation therapy patients should have, and I don't even know how long they should have it for. So do you want to just talk a little bit about the work you've done in the past and then why you did this study and what it showed? Sure. Um, so very hot button issues and, and controversies within the field. I think what we know is that for patients with intermediate and high risk prostate cancer, there have been many trials run across the world that have established that there is a benefit, an actual survival benefit to giving hormone therapy or androgen deprivation therapy with radiation. Typically for intermediate risk prostate cancer patients, that's four to six months of therapy in total. And for high risk prostate cancer patients, it's 18 to 36 months in total. Now, we have done something through what we call the MARCAP Consortium. So this is a meta-analysis of randomized trials in cancer of the Prostate Consortium. It's an initiative led by myself and um, Dr. Dan Spratt at uh, University Hospitals in Seidemann, where we basically went to all the cooperative trial groups that did all the real work and ran these important trials and asked them, will they share their individual patient data with us so that we could do meta-analyses to try to harmonize and quantify things like what you just asked. You know, w- what's the benefit which patients should get long-term hormone therapy? Can we quantify the benefit to patients? And so that's how this idea was formulated. We, we did a project about a year ago where we looked at who benefits from using hormone therapy with radiation, what's that benefit? And then also, is it beneficial to prolong that in the adjuvant setting, meaning that most of the hormone therapy is after the radiation is completed or in the neoadjuvant setting? And what we had looked at in that specific paper was just patients getting longer-term hormone therapy. And what we saw was that longer-term hormone therapy in the adjuvant setting was highly beneficial for all endpoints, but neoadjuvant ADT prolongation, going from a total of three to six months uh, versus a six to nine months total, all front-loading was not beneficial for anything. That moved us towards a separate question, which is what the recent paper addressed. And we like to come up with uh, nicknames, and so we, we call this the sandstorm analysis, where we're looking at the sequencing of androgen deprivation therapy, specifically in patients getting short durations of hormone therapy. Is it better to do neoadjuvant concurrent sequencing, which has been the standard of care in the U.S., or concurrent adjuvant sequencing, which is the standard of care in Europe and in some areas of Canada? And essentially, it's basically, you know, to to boil it down, if someone is getting four months of hormone therapy, do you start two months before the radiation begins or do you start the day they begin radiation? 
Because if you do it the day begin the, the, the day they begin radiation, most of the hormone therapy, most of the suppressant is adjuvant, whereas <coughs> excuse me, in the other way it's all kind of mixed, front loaded and concurrent. Why would it make any difference? Yeah. Perfect question. So um, there are some Perfect. Scientific, yeah. Uh, Perfect. I knew you were gonna say it too. <laughs> That's a yeah. question I have. So there's some scientific rationale for why it may be beneficial to have it adjuvantly. Specifically, when we are treating cancer with ionizing radiation, we're damaging DNA. Cancer tries to divide, undergoes mitotic catastrophe, and dies. That's how cancer dies in response to radiation, any cancer. Prostate cancer can repair its DNA using essentially antigen-mediated pathways. So the idea is if you have suppressed testosterone for longer after the radiation is completed, that may consolidate the impact of radiation because it is a radiosensitizing agent to actually have ADT. So for these localized prostate cancer patients, we assume that that radiosensitization is important in consolidating the cell kill of the tumor itself. If we think that's a major mechanism of action, then adjuvant would be better than neoadjuvant because it's you know the post-treatment suppression. Additionally, when we treat a cancer with radiation, we, we lead to upregulation of the antigen receptor. That's been shown as well. So there could be kind of a feedback loop there, and we're blocking that feedback when we have the adjuvant hormone therapy suppressant. Now, the reason to do neoadjuvant has been, you know, maybe you can shrink the prostate, and that would reduce the side effects of the treatment. And then possibly, maybe you affect the neovasculature in a way that would make it more primed to cell kill after radiation. So that's what the neoadjuvant camp would tell you. We went in thinking that adjuvant might be better. And there is some precedent for that that has been studied in two randomized trials. They looked at um, neoadjuvant concurrent versus adjuvant. That's the RTOG9413 trial. An old, <coughs> excuse me, an old study developed in 1994. That's where the name comes from. They didn't, they didn't see any big significant impact, but there was a signal that if you're treating the prostate only, maybe better to have adjuvant hormone therapy. Then there was a Canadian trial run out of an Ottawa Cancer Center that compared neoadjuvant concurrent versus concurrent adjuvant. Not statistically significant, but a numerical 10% improvement in biochemical control with the adjuvant sequencing. Can I ask a question? Please. Is there a reason that neoadjuvant would be harmful? Or if not, why yeah. not just do both? Give a little neoadjuvant and then give longer adjuvant. That's a, that's a great question as well. As well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah both, both good questions. <laughs> No we don't. We don't think so. So, okay. it, I, and and this analysis did not show that it's harmful to do okay. neoadjuvant concurrent. And actually, the question you asked is very insightful. We didn't look at neoadjuvant concurrent adjuvant. Okay, that, that might be the best. Maybe it does help to do it some a, a little bit before and then some afterwards. We didn't compare that. We compared before together and together after. Because practically, and you're radiation oncologist. I mean, oftentimes do these folks come into your office already having gotten a shot from urologist? I mean, is that it depends. That's common. Depends, yeah. But not, but not always the case because sometimes patients are still deciding between surgery and radiation. They have not started hormone therapy. Hormone therapy is a big deal breaker for a lot of people to yeah. undergo radiation. Before we start talking about your study, I wanted to talk about the location of the radiotherapy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned before there was some prostate-only radiation and you also talked about there being a, wilder, a wider field. Yes. In your trial, you actually looked at those two groups. Why did you differentiate between the two and why should the results between the two groups be different? Yeah, very good questions. So um, we basically were going off of this older study, the 9413 study that I mentioned was a two by two randomization. They looked at whole pelvis radius versus prostate only, and then also asked the sequencing question. So actually there were four ultimate arms and they had shown a field size ADT sequencing interaction in that study, wherein with neoadjuvant concurrent treatment, 
whole pelvis maybe had some benefit and with um, prostate only treatment there was maybe a benefit to adjuvant sequencing of the hormone therapy now the important question is why why would, would that be the case and so we don't know why, to be completely honest, but the thought may be that when you treat someone with ADT, you can see some changes in the immune microenvironment, those may be favorable, as in like anti-tumor immunity. When you are treating the whole pelvis with radiation, lymphocytes are extremely radiosensitive. We would be killing all of those lymphocytes that you might be recruiting if you're doing it concurrently. Whereas if you did it neoadjuvantly, you might prime the system with the lymphocytes or whatever immune changes are beneficial first, then you come, with the come in with the radiation and you're not depleting the lymphocytes you're trying to recruit. Maybe similar to some of the concepts that are being seen in some of these uh, concurrent RT immunotherapy trials that have unfortunately failed, where perhaps when you're giving the immunotherapy concurrently with chemo radiation in head, neck cancer, et cetera, you're, you're eliminating the very lymphocytes you're trying to recruit. And has anybody yeah. shown, I know that'd be difficult to prove, but has anybody shown that? I mean, it sort of, sort of seems theoretical, like it's hard to measure, correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So we don't have as good of an explanation for why that would be the case, yeah. but this is what we, what we think might be the explanation. So we're nine minutes and 20 seconds yeah. in. Um, what did you do? What did your study show? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so this was a meta-analysis. Uh, basically, we looked at 12 uh, trials, uh, uh, 7,409 patients, about a seventh of them got the concurrent adjuvant sequencing. Uh, the, the rest of them got the neoadjuvant concurrent sequencing. What we found was the significant interaction between field size and the impact of sequencing, meaning that there is a difference in how much there's an impact on sequencing based on whether you're treating prostate only or whole pelvis. That was statistically significant, so we broke the groups up. About 60% of patients got prostate only radiation in that group there was a huge effect size. So there's a 15% 10-year benefit in biochemical recurrence, an 8% benefit in metastasis-free survival, and a 6% benefit in overall survival. So all endpoints were significantly improved with concurrent adjuvant sequencing. With uh, neoadjuvant concurrent sequencing, there actually was not a consistent effect. The only thing that we saw was distant metastasis itself. So not the composite of MFS, but just distant metastasis was maybe slightly better with neoadjuvant concurrent. But this goes back to, you know, your, your both, both of your insightful points before, you know, what's a real effect and what's not. When you're doing these types of sophisticated thousands of patient analysis, you could have spurious findings. I would say that I mentioned both of the earlier trials had shown a signal for adjuvant being better with prostate-only radiation. And in this study, it was completely clear. All of the confidence intervals were clearly ending before one in favor of concurrent adjuvant when you're treating the prostate only. So it was not one fluke endpoint. All four endpoints we looked at were benefited, consistent with the scientific idea of the adjuvant suppressant and the prior studies. Whereas in neoadjuvant concurrent, we don't have a good explanation. And for the, for the in whole In practice, purpose. how yeah. much prostate only versus extended field is given? Perfect question too. In this study, we looked at four to six months of hormone therapy only. We did not look at patients getting really long duration. So if we go back and say, who are the patients that are getting that duration of hormone therapy? It would really be the unfavorable intermediate risk patients. Mm -hmm. And in those patients, there's really no precedence to treat the lymph nodes anyway. Yeah. So if we look at it that way, this is really good evidence for prostate-only patients getting four to six months of hormone therapy. Should we front load or back load it? I think it shows pretty convincingly we should backload it. Uh -huh. So there's only four to six months of therapy. It's not that longer period right. that you talked about. Yeah. Did that affect the patient population that was included? 
Well, so this was kind of taking uh, patients that were enrolled on all these different trials that had kind of a uniform receipt of duration of hormone therapy. So we wanted to synchronize that because if you start asking multiple questions like long-term duration, one could argue the sequencing isn't as important. So if I were to give someone 18 months of hormone therapy, it might not matter if two months were before because the bulk period is still afterwards. They're still suppressed for many months afterwards. So we wanted to really look at a shorter term duration where the testosterone recovery kinetics may come into play. So define the patient population that you think these results are applicable to for doctors in the clinic today. I would say unfavorable intermediate risk prostate prostate cancer patients that you're gonna treat with prostate only radiation and you're gonna add ADT four to six months, those patients I would recommend backloading the ADT. You start at the day they start radiation. And what's the current practice? I mean, it sounds like it's a little bit all over the map. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a little bit all over the map. I think in the U.S., traditionally, it has been neoadjuvant concurrent. That's how many of the U.S. trials were designed and run. Okay. But in Europe, URTC, it has always been concurrent adjuvant. And it's not like we see, you know, uh, you know it's not like there's no precedence for doing that in the, in the U.S. either. And who needs to get the three years or two years of your hormone therapy? Which patients, yeah. do, which patients would it be unsafe to give this four-month adjuvant period to? I'd say anyone with high-risk prostate cancer. And define cancer. that for me. So it would be someone with a Gleason score of 8 to 10 or a Gleason grade group 4 to 5 prostate cancer, uh, clinical T3A or B, which means extracapsular extensor and seminal vesicle invasion, or PSA 20 or higher. Those patients should get long-term hormone therapy. And do any of these, these radiotherapy patients not need hormone therapy at all? Or does everyone who gets radiation also need ADT? I think the patients with more favorable disease don't need hormone therapy. So that might be someone with favorable intermediate risk disease, like a Gleason 3 plus 4, maybe one intermediate risk factor, like just the PSA is greater than 10, or just some bifocal disease within the prostate. I think those patients can be treated you know, safely with radiation alone. So what proportion of radiotherapy patients do you think your results are applicable to? I think they're probably applicable to about 25% of the patients that are the unfavorable intermediate risk patients that are getting ADT. We treat a lot of high-risk prostate cancer patients because those patients may opt to not receive surgery because they would need multimodality therapy. And, And excuse me, the earlier stage patients, many of them go for surgery alone. And um, this, were brachytherapy patients included or was all external being? All EBRT. And do you think it applies to brachy? Is, is brachy done yeah. to that unfavorable intermediate? It, it can be. And yeah. I think it would apply there as well because radiation is, is radiation. Yeah. I, still, I still think there is that benefit in terms of cell kill. There were some quirky results for the neoadjuvant population. Yes. In your, and when I read it, I thought, mm, is it really true that neoadjuvant actually is better in some and adjuvant better in other? You've described yes. mainly today the adjuvant population and there were some survival signals in that yes the neoadjuvant population the data as i saw it was much more sketchy yeah. is there any population at all that you think should be getting neoadjuvant therapy yeah so i think if someone is getting this whole pelvis radiation therapy in this study there was a signal okay there maybe there's a slight oncologic benefit in metastasis rate for the neoadjuvant concurrent but it could have been a fluke because it was just that one endpoint. But again, I wouldn't use whole pelvis in someone getting just a short-term course of ADT anyway. Right. So this study wouldn't apply there. So, so I don't think this study you could use to justify neoadjuvant concurrent treatment. All that said, it goes back to what Brian asked. It's not harmful to give neoadjuvant. It may be better to give concurrent adjuvant, but it's, you're not actively harming patients necessarily by giving some neoadjuvant. But you have to give that adjuvant period in your opinion. I, I personally would. Okay, that's good. You go, Brian. Well, I was going to say, so where, where does the field go? I mean, this mm-hmm. huge meta-analysis, congrats on doing it. 
is there a natural prospective trial or if we sort of move yeah. beyond it? You know what I mean? Sometimes yeah. you can't study everything in a prospective trial. Yeah, I, I think the issue is sequencing is such a hard thing to randomize. And, yeah. and it, of all the questions to ask in prostate cancer, I don't think someone would invest the millions of dollars needed yeah. to run a big trial of sequencing. So this may be the best quality evidence we get. But to your point, where I think this is very relevant is these novel drugs, the uh, oral GnRH antagonists that have a very quick off period. Their period of testosterone suppression is going to be a lot briefer than some yeah. of these other drugs. And so an, an argument that had been made before, if you're giving new adjuvant concurrent, but you're using depot Lupron, they may have a built-in period of adjuvant testosterone suppression because of how long that drug takes to wear off anyway. But if we're using these novel agents and you're giving them two months before and they recover their testosterone so quickly, they may not have that built-in yeah. period. So I think the implication is more in the design and how we analyze the trials that are using these new drugs that wear off so much more quickly because the adjuvant component is going to be a lot shorter. And patients like shorter periods of adjuvant therapy for, for obvious sure. reasons. Yeah. Two questions for me. Number one is, is anyone getting whole pelvis radiation anymore in your practice? Mm-hmm. And number two is, you talked about a string of different endpoints in a retrospective type of analysis. How important is it to achieve OS in this analysis? Okay, both good questions. So um, whole pelvis I, I do in selected patients with high-risk prostate cancer. And there's a nice trial out of India that had shown in these very high-risk prostate cancer population, uh, there is a benefit to treating the pelvic lymph. But they're getting two years of hormone therapy. But they're getting long-term hormone yeah. therapy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it in the context of short-term hormone therapy. Okay, great. So that clears up some of the issues with yeah. this. So there's one population that's relevant. And what about these endpoints? Yes. You know, are the other endpoints beyond OS relevant in the grand scale of things? Yeah. Um, so I think MFS is known to be a surrogate endpoint for OS and localized prostate cancer. I treat a lot of these men and, you know, the, while OS is obviously the gold standard endpoint for sure, we want to live longer. I think quality of life is also very important. In a highly curable disease, we want to maximize quality of life. <laughs> and you have to think, what's the quality of life of having recurrent cancer? So even if the BCR is not a predictor of overall survival because we have an effective salvage like ADT, Someone has to live with the anxiety of a recurrence, potentially salvage ADT, which impacts quality of life. So I do think these earlier endpoints are important in earlier stage prostate cancer, where OS is not going to be driven by the disease most of the time anyway. What do you think the FDA would think of these surrogate endpoints? Uh, they may be okay with MFS. I think they've, because the ICECAP group and others have validated that MFS is a surrogate endpoint. So many of the current uh, kind of indication trials are powered for an MFS benefit. I don't think they would go for a BCR benefit per se, but I, I do think that's something that patients may be interested in. Uh, maybe my last two questions. So um, was it hard to get access to the data? Like you said, you kind of had to go around and ask for access to individual patient yeah. data, like walk us through that process, yeah. which I'm sure isn't straightforward. And then the second is, are there, a, you know, what's the next question you're going to ask and answer with those data set? Sure. So um, this was almost like a seven-year effort to get the data from all of the different groups. Um, some groups have data sharing applications that you can file out online, and they will hand over the data if you pay a certain fee. And, and other groups are, which I completely understand, they're more of the standpoint that we ran this trial, you know, it, we don't want to necessarily hand over the data itself. So it took some legwork to get the consortium running. But now that it's running, I think people are all on board and, and willing to participate for sure. And I'm very grateful to all the collaborators that we've had. Um, in terms of our next question, we're looking at actually testosterone recovery. So 
the questions, you know, how long is someone's testosterone actually suppressed? We don't have a great idea for that. Right. And that's going to be very important with these faster acting agents. Can other people get access to the database? Like if I'm a junior investigator, say, hey, I want to ask a question. <clears throat> I, would, I would encourage you to reach out to me. Because of the way that the data was shared, there's some legal aspect, like it was shared with a certain team. Yeah. But we're op- we have worked with you're, others. So you're open to collaboration. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Brian, we should go and top up our vitamin D levels. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The only challenge now is whether we can save this successfully, um, which I hope we can. This has been fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank um, you very much. I've really so much. enjoyed our first face-to-face <laughs> podcast. <laughs>